Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. In this episode, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Kyler McDaniel makes his weekly Friday appearance. This is weekly Friday appearance discussed on uh, this particular episode of Fangraphs Audio. Some of the moves from the winter meetings that involve prospects, OFP grades, trying to understand them, adjusting for scouting bias, if you're in the front office, adjusting for a scout's bias, and also, uh, according to Kyle McDaniel, according to Kyle McDaniel, the three best jobs in baseball, the three best jobs in baseball. That is all to follow. What will follow this introduction more immediately is a musical selection provided by Kyle McDaniel, which I believe is some manner of mashup, if that's a word, uh, some manner of mashup uh, featuring Fleetwood Mac and 2 Chains. So that will be the first thing to occur after this introduction, and then it will be a conversation with Kyla McDaniel. Thank you. They can make a nice roux to pour over your chicken. You, what are you doing, Kylie? <laughs> it's the it's the classic uh, Hollywood Squares thing where you give a joke answer and then a real answer. Uh, sorry, I know I know it more. Yes, those wait, are the two. Yeah, those are the two. Ways wait, wait, to don't extend. tell me. I'm more of a wait, wait, don't tell me guy. Yeah, well, you're from the Midwest. No, I'm not. <laughs> we sure seem like you are. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the Marlins haven't done that much. Um, uh, it's a weird move. Yes, the Tigers are also like that. Like, once a guy has trade value, he's out the door. Mm-hmm. Their I mean, list is, is not like, going to be good. The, the Tigers, I mean, the Tigers have been quite good. They have quite a bit of money. Yeah, the White Sox were like that for a long time. And, I mean, they have a couple guys that are, they haven't traded yet, but they traded some guys uh, at this year's meetings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I walked up to one of the White Sox guys that I knew there, and I was like, hey, that list is getting a little weaker. They go, yeah, we still got those three guys at the top. He's talking about Rodon, Montes, and Tim Anderson. I was like, yeah, you guys typically haven't had those guys, and you still got them. So, I mean, I mean you know not to get rid of those three guys. The, I mean, what you say you know not to get rid of those three guys. I mean, do you think that, do you think that they would if, if, if uh, they have historically gotten rid of prospects? No, I think those three have a high enough trade value, and I know you know Dave's written a lot. Uh, Dave Cameron uh, has written a lot about how superstar players, especially with only a year or two of control left, or close to superstar or whatever, don't get the return people think they should. They think, oh, I know this guy is on my fantasy team. He should be traded for one of the prospects that's also on my fantasy team, which is not really how it works anymore. Right. Uh, so those kinds of guys don't get traded. I, I tweeted after Haney got traded. I was like, you know, some people aren't crazy about him. I, I'd, I'd say the if you were to quote a bunch of scouts on where they'd put him in a top 100, it would be anywhere from probably like 30 to 60. Mm-hmm. And even like 60th, that kind of prospect doesn't get traded a lot these days, especially for a guy like D. Gordon. Hey, well, wait, 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 with regard to the 30 to 60, is there is there a certain type of player that is more likely to span? I don't, like, I don't even have a sense of like, if 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 that gap is wide, one scout says thirty, the other says sixty. No, that's pretty normal. That's pretty normal. What what's what yeah. is it when it starts getting wide? Oh, uh, you there's a different cutoff every year. I mean, I've only done this a couple times, but 
I would say, depending on the year, anywhere from like 35 to 50 or so is where there's sort of like a drop off where I guess using the nomenclature I use, it's like once you get all the 55s and 60s and 70s and all that as far as overall future value goes, mm-hmm. and then you're getting down toward the, to the 50s, uh, then it starts opening up to where you're like, well, this 50 might not be better than that other guy that was the top 45 on another list. One of them's gonna be 80, one of them's gonna be 50, and it's kind of the same. Like, typically that's kind of how the list goes. And sometimes that cutoff is 30, and sometimes it's 60, and, I know in past years when I haven't been doing this list and uh, other people have, they'll comment like, oh, it's really deep this year. Oh, it's not that deep this year. And I tend to not subscribe to trying to explain why that is or isn't the case because there usually isn't a reason. And I'm not even sure that us on the Internet are good at saying things are good or bad now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I've talked about this before. But one of the teams I worked for, I did a study uh, about what defines the depth of a draft. And so I took, like, our OFPs for all the guys in the draft for, like, a, I don't know, six- or seven-year period and put them on a graph to see at what, like, ranking on a pref list of everyone in the whole draft, so, like, 500 guys or whatever, at what ranking do the, all the lines come together, where there's basically, you know, after the 50th overall guy on the list, every draft is exactly the same. They all have the same distribution of everything, and so the draft is defined by the top 50 players. That's what defines, you know, the depth or strength of a draft because beyond that, everything's the same. Right. It turns out that cutoff is, like, 20th overall. Like, it, the draft is defined by the top anywhere from 15 to 25 picks to kind of depending on what kind of draft it is, but that's it. And so when it's one of those sort of narrative things when you'll see, like, I'm, I've read it in Baseball America many times, and I don't They'll quote, like, scouting director, like, oh, this draft's real deep in the fourth or fifth round. You're getting such and such when the, at least the numbers that the team I worked for had suggested that, yeah, maybe the guy you take in the fourth round you thought was a second rounder and, you know, there could be a specific instance. And usually when scouts will quote those sorts of things, that's what they're thinking of as a specific guy. They think they're going to get it to a certain spot, not everyone, because it's obviously hard to sort of comment on all at the same time. But I find those sorts of pronouncements, whether it's the draft or other things, is, Kind of ridiculous, which I don't think is at all what you were asking me about. Well, no, no, but that's interesting you bring it up because I'm sure you've had a chance to look at like uh, um, average war, like average career war uh, plotted against um, overall pick in a draft. And it's a it's like a crazy slope, right? It's like very high on the left. It's exponential. Right. Yes. It's very – yes. And once um, you get to like the 30th pick, it's like almost the same as the 60th pick, which right. people yeah, don't yeah. see it, like that. It flattens out pretty considerably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just looking at that with regard to, I think Marcus Semyon and like the chances, the chances even of making the major leagues when you're drafting the sixth round, like I think chances of making the major leagues at all, like you make one plate appearance is only like 25%. Yeah, yeah. I would say in general, like once you get outside the top two to three rounds, you're looking at, maybe five or six guys that make the big leagues and usually just one per round if you're lucky that it has any sort of impact. Right, right, right. Yeah, there and, were and usually less than that. Right. And there were I think there were as many guys Yeah, so over like a three year year period, I just took a brief sample, like over a three year period, there were as many guys as many guys in the first round, um, just like the top thirty picks, uh recorded had recorded a ten war or higher in their career, as many guys had done that as had ever even played in the majors from the sixth round. So yeah, that sounds right. They're better. Is the, I guess that's the point. So, uh, but they I guess that's your, that's your summation. Well, part of it is, uh, is, uh, probably opportunities as well, right? Because the, the higher draft picks 
or we could assume they're more talented. And if the teams assume they're more talented, which they likely are, that's why they selected that player uh, that high in the draft, are going to give that that guy more opportunities. Yeah, yeah. no, I would agree. And yeah. yeah, and and to put a bow on it, when you look at the uh, every now and then, you'll see those studies like, oh, we're going to break down the Baseball America Top 100 from you know 2002 or like some year where you could you know somewhat legitimately do that. And when you look, I, I found when you look at like the results from these sorts of studies, it's like, oh, the 2002 list was really good, and the 2003 list was terrible, and the 2004 list was great, and then mm-hmm. it's just like basically random. Like I think it's almost like it comes down to, oh, Matt Kemp was rated 89th that one year, and he's got you know 25 WAR or whatever, and so that moves the average up, and the whole list now becomes good. But those lists in some ways are defined by the stars, so you don't want to ignore them or try to diminish them and go for how many guys made the majors because those are the guys – the guys on those lists are the kinds that get pushed to the majors even if they're not good enough. Mm-hmm. So you want to look at the, the sort of stars, but by that nature, uh, it's going to be skewed heavily by one or two players, which obviously doesn't define if the list was done well or the depth was good that year or if we you know, determined that the strength or depth of the lift was accurate because it's just defined by what a handful of people did. So I think that's why you need like the – the balance of, you know, 10 or 12 years worth of lists and which even then I think some people try to use that in studies as like a predictive, like, Oh, did you know that pitchers rank five to 12 are actually worse than pitchers rank 17 to 20? And I was like, I mean, yeah, that's what it says, but would you just take a lower rank pitcher? Cause that's what that thing said. Like, it's not really what that means. Right. Or alternatively, if you say, Oh, this guy, I mean, that's just like a left-handed batter hitting lefties better than he does righties for a season. I think that's probably a similar. Yeah, idea. and I think it's some of the same stuff that uh, Bill James said about clutch hitting. That you watch the game, you would guess if you knew nothing else that it exists. And the numbers, you can't prove it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It may just mean it's not conducive to being proven with numbers, or at least in a you know easily done method, just sort of using the numbers you pull off of you know any website. Right. Right. Um, There's something to be said for a little extra thinking, which I feel like you would subscribe to that theory. I subscribe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it would be one of the few things I subscribe to. Yeah, what would you pay per month for that subscription? I don't know. The uh, It feels it feels like luxurious getting uh, anything in print these days. Like My, my wife, well, we've only recently reached um, the middle class, and uh, so we, we have... Uh, Can we play the Jefferson's theme song right now? <laughs> well, we're moving on. The the uh, we so we now have a subscription to the New Yorker. It's not Whoa. like it's not like wait. I, let me rephrase that. It's not like we entered the middle class and they were like, and here's your subscription to the New <laughs> yeah. Yorker. Nice to have you here. Congratulations. <laughs> this is this is now this is now the barber you'll be going to starting today. I see your income has risen and you wear glasses. Here you are. <laughs> here's the mug for the NPR donation you will be making. And we gave you some starter arugula here. Act like you like this. <laughs> oh, and kale too. Kale. That's a big one. I actually had some earlier today, so I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah. Which arugula or kale? Kale. Yeah. I try to eat healthy when I'm at home because when I'm on the road, I do not eat healthy. I don't know, Kyle. I tell you, sorry. I'm sorry if I surprised you at the beginning of the podcast with a real question. I did three episodes of the podcast this week with Dave Cameron. I listened to all of them. Wow. Well, congratulations. But Although I, you didn't see this, but I put listen in quotes. Oh, yes. Air quotes you used. Yes. Okay. The uh, Yeah, so I, I've been uh, – um, I became accustomed to asking questions 
and <laughs> getting them answered. And getting them answered. How dare you yeah. cheat on me with Dave? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I fell into that trap. I apologize. Here's yeah. a, here's a question. In in uh, well, all right. I'm going to return to my actual curiosity. A free flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. Are you? Jo- That's amazing that you just said that because I was actually going to. That was going to be one of the first things I said in our conversation. I know exactly. What I, I guess I'm. I guess I'm predictable though. Yeah. Um, wait. Say it again. <laughs> say it again. A, a free flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But usually immature ones is the uh, thing you have to add. Here's a question. I did uh, – uh, we posted the Zips projections for the Colorado Rockies today. And Are these all on the side or you just put them up as you post them in the articles? Put, yeah, put them up as you post them. Steamer is always available. Zimborski, uh, I think, appreciates the the, the drama of the, yeah, un, the, of the unrolling. Yeah. It's uh, all about that T, Zimborski. The, the – the, Fourth ranked player by projected war among field playing Rockies is David Dahl, and I think that I mean that's a lot of that's probably damning of their their twenty five man roster or their that's roster. the first thing I thought of. Yeah, but he's also ahead of Corey Dickerson and Drew Stubbs, you know, uh, Willine Rosario, Justin Morneau. Those are fine. Those guys are fine. You know, they're not they're not stars, but you don't expect that from David Dahl. A lot of it is from David. I can tell Dahl. you this much: they'll never be Royals. The why <laughs> is that a is that a reference to a Lord song? It may it might be. Ugh, come on, Kylie McDaniel. <laughs> I've really reached it. Here, before we continue, I should say this. So, I spent a good bit of my winter meetings talking to other writers, and one of those other writers was Jonah Carey. And by the end of the week, I snuck up on him when he was at the at the uh, bar at the hotel and started rubbing his shoulder, and he turned around and goes, I bet it's Kylie. And he goes, you know what, Kylie? You just did something that I would do. You've been doing stuff I would do the entire week. You've been telling corny jokes just like me. He's like, I really like that you're going for it, but I feel like you're a younger version of me. And I, like, basically ran away. <laughs> it's like, this is not something I was capable – I was not ready to hear this. No, yeah, you need to you need to do some soul-searching after that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm telling the internet I've made mistakes and I'm here to correct. Yeah. So tell us mistakes. about David. So you've you've done evaluating the prospects for the Colorado Rockies. Yes, I have. And you've written about David Dahl. Now, listen, Kylie. Um, if this were chat, I understand that you would you would provide a link to the evaluating the prospects. Well, it'd be a link, and I would also give you a sentence. That's not, that's the new me. Yeah, that's good, and I think that's good practice. Um, but. Let's talk about – I'll tell you what Zip says about David Dahl and why it's so optimistic. And a lot of it has to do with his center field defense. Uh, I think he's like – it ranks him as a, a plus seven defender, which is like a – well, 55 or 60 in center field. I think uh, yes. I have that, yeah. And I'm curious if you think that David Dahl is the sort of player whose defense – could uh, basically carry him. He could be like 15% worse than league average in terms of offense and still be an average player. Uh, I have him as a 60 runner that would be an average center fielder. He is also like pretty decent sized. So I would think if anything, he'll fill out a little bit Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, may possibly be fringy, may possibly move to a corner. He's got an arm for right field. Uh, yeah, and it's also possible that the guy that's a plus runner with good instincts in general, offensively and defensively, that projects as an average guy, 
ends up being above average. That's not uncommon. Is there a sort of is, – is this a figuring things out type of situation? Like you have uh, the basic tools and then something clicks or – Well, and the other thing with uh, sort of evaluating minor league defense is it's typically done by scouts seeing five games where for a center fielder – that might come down to what three fly balls over five games, and in any given five game set, there might be none that are properly conveying, you know, how good he is. Mm-hmm. So it's possible the guys I talked to just never had an opportunity to really evaluate it. I saw him a decent amount in high school, and he seemed, you know, good defensively, like at least average instincts, and obviously with plus speed, you you know, the sort of raw tools are there. Uh, I guess the short version is, yeah, that's possible. I wouldn't guess that, but if it happened, I wouldn't be. Shocked. Whereas, for example, with the Rockies, Nolan Arenado is like way above average, and from everyone I talked to, he was way below average in in like Double A. So obviously something you know happened there that's different and that's unexpected. Uh, whereas this Dolphin, I, I think this is kind of a subtle difference to be able to pick that out. At this yeah, point. yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's interesting to me. And it's a, I guess it's an interesting point. I talk about this with Dave Cameron sometimes. Uh, you know, looking at how one might uh, how one evaluates defense objectively. That you know, essentially, you're looking at you know, you're only looking at 50 plays per year. Uh, you know, maybe for a shortstop, it's more than that. Maybe for uh, a corner outfielder, it's not that many. But you're looking at a, a pretty small sample every year of those plays that are neither routine uh, nor impossible, right? Those those plays in the middle. And there just there aren't a lot of them. And so it's interesting you bring up in terms of <clears> – now, if you're not able to see a guy actually make one of those plays, um, what are the other sort of – what are the other – aspects of that player you're looking at in terms of attempting to, you know, provide some sort of projection about his defense? Yeah, I mean, there's little indicators. Obviously, if he's, like, really savvy on the base paths or seems like a, you know, really good contact hitter that, like, you know, works the count a lot, you can kind of assume that, oh, he's got good feel in all aspects of the game. He seems to sort of give a crap defensively and, you know, puts forth effort on sort of routine ground ball singles and stuff like that. Like, there's little indicators that usually tell you if a guy's going to be good, but don't actually tell you anything directly. Uh, and then there's also sort of like the line drive that he couldn't quite get to, but his first step was good. There's little direct indicators like that mm-hmm. where you can get a first step on a ball that shouldn't tell you anything and wouldn't tell the stats anything, but could tell a scout something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also, when you're an amateur uh, scouting a guy in high school or college, you can get to talk to him and talk to him about, like, how he does things. And uh, I know I was talking to uh, a player that played for the Rays, and they were explaining how uh, when he came up, that center field was really tough uh, with the ceiling in the mm-hmm. stadium, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, I thought I was really good defensively, and then that kind of threw me off, and it took, like, a year, maybe two years to get used to it. And then I went back to being good again, and obviously that's that's a well-known enough thing that people have complained about that you would catch that. But you know, maybe uh, a lot of guys talk about when they go from GCL or some short-season stadiums to a full-season stadium, where suddenly there's a second deck, there's lights, like there's literally sort of visual stuff that changes. You know, you might catch them on a bad day, or a guy like Kyle Schwarber that played you know first base and catcher in college, and now is suddenly playing left field. He just doesn't know the angles at all. Uh, and there were. I'm trying to remember who it was. There's somebody that either just wrote up or will write up soon on the prospects list. Oh, Conforto uh, for the Mets. Right. Uh, one of the Mets guys was explaining to me that he was terrible his first year at Oregon State because he had he played shortstop in high school and had never played the outfield. And then he was sort of an adventure as a sophomore but kind of figured it out. And then I saw him his summer after his sophomore year, and he was still pretty bad, like was clearly a left field only maybe first baseman. And then as a junior – 
I saw I didn't see him play, but I saw some video clips of him making good throws. Like his arm was better, which is very wow. unusual at that age. And then also, he, like he was apparently getting better defensively, and they think he could play right field. But they're like, he just got settled in the left, so we're not going to move him. But right, right, right. It's unusual for a guy to get better that, uh, like, it basically take that long. But some guys ball off the bat, kind of slicing is sort of natural to follow. And some guys that aren't as quick are just sort of not used to that sort of thing. And he's yeah. like a 35 or 40 runner, so he's obviously, you know, as Schwarber, I think, is probably a 40. So they're, you know, deck's kind of stacked against him uh, in a sense that they're both new to left field and they're both not that quick and don't have huge arms. Right. Although it does appear with the Miguel Montero acquisition by the Cubs that uh, Schwarber, uh, Schwarber will not be spending as – his chances of catching are lower is the idea. I, I, somebody asked me this in the chat today. They already committed to putting him out this uh, this season as a catcher to sort of see what happens. And I think he could still give value as the backup catcher that you put in left field or first base when he's not catching, uh, rather than having to carry a backup catcher. Obviously, that basically gives you a free roster spot and could be like an Evan Gaddis type guy that maybe he's turns out he's a really good framer, and so all of a sudden somebody wants to put him in a bigger role as a catcher. Like It would be dumb not to see if that's possible just because you have Miguel Montero, which for all we know he could be terrible next year. Right. Miguel Monterrible? <laughs> now you're turning into Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> tickle, tickle. I slowly step out of the room backwards. <laughs> tickle, tickle. Hey, um... A point I wanted to revisit, you, you mentioned that uh, sort of one project that you conducted within a front office was, was you were able to gather all of the uh, reports with OFP numbers, um, OFP grades uh, from the scouts within that organization. Yes. Um, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> uh, it does, right, because like so a couple of years ago I tried to measure objectively and – who the good scouts were, right? <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, it was – well, no. I mean it was just – I tried to make very, very clear that this was probably a losing effort. But, you know, to say like, well, at least <laughs> – I can imagine you writing like, all of them are dumb. Long live stats. Go fan graphs. <laughs> yeah, that was just it. I did it. I did it, wrote it in Comic Sans. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, – and then and it was right – it was a like Friday afternoon and I just – yeah, I didn't come back till the Monday morning. The, no, no, but it was, um, you know, I looked at the signing scouts, and I think actually one thing maybe I tried to do was, as in particular, tried to look at players who's, who were drafted outside of the first round. I think that was part of it. Because, like, you know, because I, I started and I was looking at Justin Verlander maybe at first, but, like, and Justin Verlander was signed by whomever in the Tigers organization. That guy has nothing to do with them actually picking him. Right, and that yeah, and that that was the sense I got after I asked around. People were like, "Yeah, not not only does the, do his bosses make the decision more than he does, but the fact that he happened to be on the board has nothing to do with how good of a scout he is." But yeah, for, first round is basically useless. The back of the first round, maybe the area scout has some impact, but you got to typically get sort of outside the top 30, 40 picks to get to where they can actually, you know, the stuff changes because of stuff that they said. Right, and I think that there was a guy. I think it was the guy who signed Alan Alan Webster. Oh uh, yeah, that's a good yeah. Who uh, who signed Alan Webster? The scout. I don't know who the scout was, but I know it was a very low profile. Was it high school out of North Carolina where he was like an infielder, and they drafted him, gave him a little bit of money, made him into a pitcher. I think that's correct. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't know for. Uh, oh yeah, Lon Joyce. I don't know Lon. Lon Joyce. He Lon Joyce has also signed someone else. 
He had he'd also sent someone else that was it might have uh, been Jerry Sands or something. I would say Jerry Sands is from that same era. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, 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 and yeah, I think it was Jerry Sands. And Jerry Sands didn't necessarily turn into much either, but Jerry Sands was also well, he was worth it. I mean, he was part of a trade at one point, so that's something. Yeah, people thought he was a potential everyday guy. It just turned out he wasn't. Right, it turned out he wasn't. But he was. But there were he had a he had a moment in the sun, and he was a twenty fifth round pick. Yeah, Webster got twenty k in the eighteenth round. Out of uh, high school. And then what did Jerry Sands? What did Jerry Sands get? Let's see what we got here. This, see, this is the exciting part. You thought getting OFPs was exciting. No, this is great too. I love this. Uh, Jerry Sands, twenty fifth round, two thousand eight, and he signed for five grand. Okay, so thirty thousand between them, right? And they both became something. Yeah, they could get you a fully loaded new Miata though, so that's still a bit of so a decision. So there's, yeah, you gotta you gotta think about that. Do you want yeah. do you want Alan Webster and Jerry Sands? Yeah, or, do you or want the a, chick magnet to end all chick magnets. You think you think a fully loaded Miata costs thirty thousand? I guess that's probably right. That's why I said fully loaded because yeah. I'm pretty sure it'd be tough to get to thirty k on a Miata. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The um, but so I think that was one. So I, I think I ended up looking outside of the first round. And so when you start saying like, oh. C.J. Edwards is another guy like that that was from South Carolina. I think he was a 48th rounder that signed for like 50 grand, and then right. three years later he was like the headliner, and I believe it was a Garza trade. Right, and so that's a huge amount of value, right? Because if you're trade, because then people are like, oh, we want we want cost controlled C.J. Edwards because you know he can maybe be worth, <clears throat> uh, well, say what? Say he's worth two wins a year over six years. That's 12 wins. You know, that's something like. Um, I don't know, seventy, eighty million dollars. Yeah, um, I'm probably a little lower than that, but it's easily over thirty. Right. And yeah, Edwards was fifty k in the fortieth round out of a high school in Prosperity, South Carolina. So they should have known. <laughs> so right. So, so as an investment, that's that's excellent. And so I think that that was part of it. But but my point is that when I was putting together this study, which again, I entirely recognize it was an exercise in futility, but I liked the idea of the exercise. Um, if you know a lot of the comments that came back were, um, and I talked with a couple of guys um, who had sort of connections with organizations, uh, they were like, "Yeah, if you wanted to do it right, you would need the OFPs. You would need yeah. guys' lists." Um, because and, then, and to be fair, you'd have to have all the other 29 teams list to see if there was a guy that he went on a limb for that no one else had turned in. That's that's sort of the example. Right. Like the article I wrote about Shane Green, how the Yankees signed him. It was the Yankees area scout lucked out that he happened to know the family and the family was kind of bothering him, like, come see him. Uh, but because of that personal connection that was somewhat... That he didn't uh, even... The personal connection that he w- wished he didn't have, it seems like. Yeah, he's trying to sever the personal connection. But he beat the most legendary scout maybe in the country, uh, Casey Kochman's dad, Tom Kochman, who oh, signed right. scores of big leaguers. He beat him on a guy that the other 28 teams didn't even know about. Like, if you need an, a measure of, is this guy good, like... You know, he wasn't beating down the door, but he also could have not gone to that workout, and he decided to. So he obviously had some sort of instincts. Have I asked you about this before, like the power of rhetoric in in the the draft room? Have we discussed this? Because it's it, that's just describe what you mean. Where where like like you're saying you're trying to sell to well who's 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 usually in charge of the draft? The GM or is it the uh, especially outside of the first round, it's the scouting director. Okay. The, the GM and owner kind of delegate to him. Mm-hmm. But the first round, sometimes they'll they'll step in and say something. Right. So 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 essentially making your you know making a pitch to the scouting director. I saw nice this fun. guy. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, well, I used I said something about rhetoric before, and you asked me to explain it in terms. I know what you, the word means. I just didn't know what you meant. <laughs> well, yeah, but no, you know the value of of you know your ability to persuade the scouting director. Almost and, like a narrative. You can like make this sound like this is a thing that'll make you smart if it ends up working out, and here's why it's likely to work out. Right. Yeah. And so I guess I'm I'm always curious because it seems like such an odd skill. It it's not it's like um, so right. If you can run fast and frequently, you can also jump high, right? This yeah. is just like your your athletic, but if you can, if you're really good at assessing um, whether a an amateur player is going to make a good professional, that doesn't also mean that you have above average um, like public speaking skills. Yeah, and oftentimes uh, scouts only have one of those, and people figure it out very quickly. There was also another thing with one of the teams I worked for. We were trying to sort of break down the scouting process. Like, all right, so. You know, we can't really tell who the good scouts are. The, the way it works out is even when you have all the data, uh, you can't really tell for at least six or seven years because they're writing reports on high school kids and low A kids right. in, in most cases. And they're not even going to get to the big leagues for four or five years, much less figure out how good they are. And then by the time you're at year six or seven and you're like, okay, we think we know how good this guy is. By year eight, you're like, all right, we have a pretty good idea. That guy's already been extended or fired or promoted or you know shot into space a couple, a couple times over by then. So essentially, you can't it can't influence your decision at all. And then obviously, when you're looking at the um, you know where a guy gets drafted, like the area scout has almost nothing to do with if he can affect where the guy is on the board. He can't affect if he happens to be the best guy on the board when the pick comes up. Like he has no control over how that sort of shakes out. He can just get the guy as high as he can and hope that he's on the board when it comes around to you, and then it's sort of luck if those things happen to line up. But a lot of guys that become scouting directors happen to have those things line up a few times and got, like, a reputation of being a dude, and then sort of guys like me that came from sort of the office environment were like, well, that's complete luck. They're like, yeah, but he gets his dudes. I was like, yeah, but getting his dudes has nothing to do with what he does. They're like, well, he gets this guy up the board, he communicates it well, like, he's in a position to take advantage if the situation goes his direction. I was like, yeah, there's something to be said for that. And if he's really good in the room and he happens to luck into a few players, while well, there's also a little skill involved, I can sort of see where that goes. But, like, the idea that you can know with, for certain that this guy's a great scout and this guy's only pretty good, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But so That's why know, there's so much, like, how he looks in, he, in, his, in his scouting uniform and did he play big league ball and does he command attention. Like, that stuff almost outweighs how good you are as a scout in a lot of cases when everyone's, you know, reasonably close in skill as far as people evaluate it. Right. And, and attempting to assess the quality of those scouts, is, again, would be difficult, it seems. Yeah, and so the, well, the other thing I was getting to was we broke down that there are two different skills that a scout needs, which is one is, like, grading the tools correctly mm-hmm. and, like, the little boxes in the middle of the report where it's, like, 60 fastball future, seven or 60 fastball now, 70 future, like that stuff. That's the one thing you have to do. And then the other one is making the OFP or the future value or whatever it is which is basically taking that report, taking all the words you write down, taking notes and maybe stuff you didn't put in there, considering how that is valued in the marketplace. And, you know, sometimes it's a big leaguer that's a six-year veteran that's about to come a free agent and get $100 million. Sometimes it's a guy in rookie ball that's very raw. Taking that and then put the correct OFP on it because it's not just – or future value or whatever. It's not just a formula. Like there's, there's some, uh, you know, sort of massaging that goes into it. Mm-hmm. That's two separate skills that have almost nothing to do with each other. And very, very few scouts are good at both of them. Most, I'd say like 80% of scouts 
are good at the tools thing and not so great at the OFP thing, but usually not so great in a specific enough way that the office knows, oh, he tends to be a little low on guys. You know, sometimes right, he'll right. he'll overrate the strike-throwing guy with average stuff. He'll just call him a four-star, but we know he's a five. And you don't have to do studies to figure that out. You can figure it out pretty quickly. If you read 20 reports from this guy when he, you know, does a team, like, you can figure out what he likes and what he doesn't and adjust accordingly. And it happens in the room all the time. Like, all right, do we want this guy or that guy? And it's like the GM and the directors and all that kind of thing. It's like, well, Jerry put a 55 on him, but, you know, Jerry's kind of high on that sort of guy. So it's, it's more of a 50. But that's the only report they had that year, so they have to go off of Jerry and know how to adjust that. And the guys Freaking, that, freaking Jerry. Yeah, Jerry. But then the guys that are good at both of those things tend to end up in the office because they're typically well-spoken, good scouts, you know, present themselves well, and you see him out there on the road, and they're like, hey, I'd like having this guy's opinion in the office when we're making decisions. And so those guys typically aren't on the road very much, which means, again, the overwhelming majority of scouts that are, you know, good and hang around and can write a good report and get the tools right have trouble with the OFP future value thing, which means then the people in the office have to be able to adjust those accordingly. And so then the people in the office that adjust the reports and have the opinion and know the scouts and get all the extra information, those guys are now almost important as the scout is. Yeah, that's right. And then the GM has to be able to decide all those groups of people, which ones are good and which ones are bad and how to adjust everything. It's a lot of sort of people skills and subtle stuff. Do you, you ever see anyone? You can't just pull up my list and decide to trade for somebody as much as I'd like to think that's what it is. Do you, do you ever uh, see anyone in the front office just crawl in the fetal position, start weeping quietly? <laughs> Quiet weeping is, uh, it's common. It's common around the trade deadline. I would. Can you I imagine would. if, like, you get called by a team 15 minutes before the deadline? Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 act it out. What do you got for me? What, All right. So my, 15 minutes before scene. the deadline, I call you about a player that is not on the block that you have not really talked about with your scouts, but what, what we think he's worth. Okay. My team has a system that you haven't really gone over with a fine-tooth comb. You just have your one report per year on everybody, yeah. and then all the guys in short season that you haven't seen this year, you just know about when they signed two years ago. And I'm like, okay, you're a such-and-such reliever that's on a two-year deal that nobody was asking about because he's got you know, a two-year deal. I swung and missed on all my guys. I need somebody. Is he available? What do you want for him? And you got 15 minutes, and you don't really get to talk to anyone other than your assistant GM and your ah. director post scouting there in the other room. And even then, you can talk to him for maybe five minutes. Can I talk to my nerd? Can I talk to my nerd guy? Yeah, your nerd guy can come in. All right. But it's uh, it's nerd guy and two directors who have essentially no more knowledge than you have. It's just what's in the system. You didn't get to go send your special assistant through this team system. You haven't talked with your staff personnel, your big league coaches about do we you know where does this guy fit? Like you have an idea what their answer would be, but there's a chance there's something you don't know because you didn't ask a specific question because you didn't think you needed to know the answer. So what what do I do? What do I I mean I hear about like uh these organizations now they all have their like their mega their mega software there's software that you know in which all the reports are located etc but i don't have you're saying i just have the normal annual report yeah that ha- well all those things are great because they take all of the raw information and put them in the same place but like i said you've got one report from freaking jerry about this minor leaguer in low A you think might be a good fit, and he's got him as a 50, mm-hmm. you don't even have time to call Jerry and ask him a little more detail. Or, you know, Jerry might be able to tell you if you call him, like, oh, that team's been trying but to But Jerry always has his phone off. That's the problem with Jerry. <laughs> Jerry. Jerry's older. He doesn't use a camera. Yeah, it's like, Jerry, Jerry, listen, it's 15 minutes to trade deadline. Could you turn on your damn phone? <laughs> you you know? tell Jerry, he goes, what's the deal with prospects? Well, I know. It's like, he's like, hey, I'm watching two and a half men. Uh, call you back right after. It's I don't like think you got my joke there. I implied that it was Jerry Seinfeld. Was I know what you did. I know what you did, but I'm saying <laughs> you didn't laugh enough. I'm saying Jerry. Well, okay, it's actually funny that it is Jerry Seinfeld. That's kind of funny. 
But I'm I was looking implying... for a new career. <laughs> so I want Devinson Romero. All right, you just got fired. Oh man, come on, Devinson. <laughs> try again. Well, actually, he, no, don't try again. You got fired. He can maybe. He can maybe. You're not going to be on baseball tonight for the next five years. Sorry. <laughs> is that that's uh, it's like purgatory for uh, the failed. good news is it pays well. Yeah. Right. I, well, all right, we'll take another rabbit trail here. So I was a bunch of – well, let's finish this topic. Remind me to come back to this. All right. I'll say come back to this. <laughs> Wait, what is what – is, give me a keyword. Uh, it's about winter meetings, job seekers. Okay. That, is that, is about, that why you've been to so many winter meetings because of jobs? The first few, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get back to that. All right. Go ahead. Are we doing, are we doing another um, like um, simulation? Well, you got fired in the last one. I think it's game over. Yeah. I know. I think no, no. I, I got, I got no, hired give by me Tommy Lestella. You could have Archie Bradley. We don't like him anyway. I got hired by the Royals. <laughs> in the meantime, well, by the way, when sorry, <laughs> there was a taco place across the street from the hotel, and uh, so Appleman and Sullivan and I and Eno and wait, Sullivan was there. Sullivan was there. Oh. I call him Sully now. Oh well, he's from San Diego. I bet he enjoyed that. Yeah. Maybe so we went to this taco place, and Ned Yost was sitting behind us. Oh yeah, that's weird. Yeah, and we were we were concocting different openers to say to him, but I, we kind of chickened out. Yeah, chickens. I saw. Um, I remember when I went, I saw Ron Washington smoking a lot. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I, it's true. I saw him smoking a lot. Well, the, yeah, the legendary ones are when uh, when you see J- uh, Jim Leland uh, throwing back some heaters. What's throwing back? Oh yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. I saw. I was actually the Super Bowl after. <laughs> it was the winter meetings after the Tigers and Giants had played in the uh, World Series. I saw Jim Leland and uh, Bruce Bochy just hanging out in the bar. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't. I didn't ever thought they were would be enemies. Uh, it, for someone though like myself, of course, who doesn't really deserve to to be in the Baseball Writers Association or uh, to go be going to these winter meetings, hey, I was not mine. Huh? Yeah, I was like, oh, that's a weird thing to see. Um, yeah, I remember it, the first winnings I went to in Vegas. Uh, it was the peak of Ozzy Guillen, Ozzy being Ozzy. Oh yeah. And it was. It sounded like he was like hosting a reality show at the bar. <laughs> you could hear him on the other side of the casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He. I think he likes to talk. That seems right. Yeah. That doesn't sound like him, but I'll go with it. Okay, where are, wait, where were we? back, 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 back? Uh, I was supposed to remind you about a thing, but I think you were. No, that wasn't it. So at the winter meetings, I, I mentioned this in the chat again today. We're basically just rehashing the whole chat. Uh, I, I believe uh-huh. I have become the spirit animal for uh, for job seekers, which is fine because I've you know I've gone through the the thing and I feel like I uh, some people helped me that necessarily didn't have to, so I feel like I owe it to myself and to baseball to. You know, pass along some advice, which I would like to say is helping, but who knows if it does or doesn't. Doesn't. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did my mom put you up to that? <laughs> um, so they, uh, one of them specifically asked me, uh, it was sort of gives me his, you know, little pitch, like here's, you know, where I'm at school, here's what I want to do, that kind of thing, and finishes with I want to be a GM. I was like, it's funny you mention that because, uh, I know you haven't worked in an office if you said that, like a, like a baseball front office. Uh-huh. He's like, why say that? I was like, well, because I, I never said that out loud, but like I started doing this pretty soon after Moneyball came out, and so like everybody wanted to do that, and everyone assumed everybody wanted to. All the older guys doing the hiring assumed all the younger guys wanted to do that. And after like three weeks, when people sort of explained to me what a GM does, I was like, that still sounds cool. Like I still think if somebody offered it to me, I'd take it. Yeah. But I'm not like lusting after it like I was before. So I'm thinking like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll be an intern at 21, and I'll be a GM at 28. That's how it works, right? Um. 
because you kind of learn like all the kind of BS that goes into it and sort of the short self life and you know that's it's kind of like being like a college football head coach like oh you get paid a lot and people talk about you but you could also be shamed for the rest of your life like how bad do you want that to happen? Oh I don't I do yeah I do not care for that because there's so much responsibility. Yeah, you and Devinson Romero should. Uh... <laughs> and, well, and then everyone, because just anyone's allowed to say things about you, and there are so many people who want to say things about you. And some people's personality, like there's some people that are high up in baseball that relish being that. Like I think they would be on a reality show if they didn't already have a good career. Yeah. And some people are a little more. You so know, what's like, the what's the real mint job? I see a lot of. Well, that's, special... that's where I'm going with this. So the reason I brought this up is when I brought up baseball tonight. Is so this guy I was talking to was like, all right, so if GM isn't all it's cracked up to be like, I get you know maybe I still want to do it or whatever. What's the job everybody wants? I go, there are three jobs everyone in baseball wants. Ooh. And after I said that to this guy, I said it to some other people, especially when we were drinking at the bar on Wednesday night, yeah. and everyone agreed with me. So the three jobs, one is agent with a $10 million client whose uh, uh, commission you've already collected. Okay. All so right. that means all you do all day is play golf or whatever you feel like, and you go see your super rich client that both of you got rich at the same time. Wait, like when you say $10 million dollar client, you mean that was your commission? The client is making $10 million a year oh, Okay. for presumably multiple years, sure. and you're getting 5% of that as long as he's getting paid. That's pretty good. I'll take it. Yeah, so that, that's one of the jobs. Because all you and, had to do and, was, uh, what and agents do? often will tell me, I've got, you know, eight guys and six of them are first round picks. If one of them gets a $10 million deal and the other one just kind of gets through arbitration, I'm set for life. Yeah. Like I don't have, I don't have to work anymore. I will, but I don't have to. Right. Uh, so that's, that's job one. And I, the other yeah, I don't is, like that he has to play golf, but I, I yeah, that, that's just like the image of do whatever you want. That's what people end up doing. Yeah, but I think they play golf stuff. is what they do. I think that's what I just said. Yeah, right. I'm no, I'm saying they do play golf. That's that's ultimate. But it would be nice if they use their funds differently. Like, oh, I'm going to start a small press. <laughs> you know what I mean? Get some free range granola here. Have a little farm. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah right. Yeah, I'm going to start. Oh, I'm going to really. Uh, I'm going to facilitate a really like a really great arts theater in my in my hometown. <laughs> Why not that? But it's always golf, yeah. I well, it. also, I remember, I think there was a thing on NPR where they were talking about, like, one of the best return on investment, which they had some weird stat to come up with this, for rich people is getting, like, theaters named after them because it'll stay there for, like, 100 years. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, like, you know, getting such and such in a, you know, that uh, rich part of Manhattan named after you is only $100 million. And if you've got $6 billion from hedge funds, like, it's a good investment. I'm thinking, like, they don't have that kind of money. Although, you I mean, smaller towns are probably less expensive. Yeah. Maybe yeah. college donation. Anyway, so that's one of them. That's one of the that's one of the jobs. One of the jobs. Uh, the second one is baseball tonight. <laughs> now, I I don't want to speak out of turn and explain exactly how much money you make and how much you work because it varies person to person. Uh, but Sweet I'll put ratio, it to you, though. Sweet ratio. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way: for what amounts to a few months of work, you are well into the six figures. Oh, that's pretty good. I want that. Yeah, I like I like all those figures. Now, how many of those figures? Like, where's the decimal point? It's after the six figures. Oh, so there's – wow. It's yeah. the eight figures total. All right. Are all the figures zero or most of them zero? <laughs> if all of them were zero, then it could be any number of figures. <laughs> yeah, okay. All yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> all right. For this podcast, Carson, you're getting paid 15 figures and they're all zero. Oh, man. Uh, well, yeah. it's actually – I probably am actually getting paid for it, which is – I'm sorry, everyone. I apologize. It's a pretty pretty good scam if you can get it. Yeah. All right, and then the third job is, and this is probably the thing about the agent job is, once you go to the agent side and you make some money, you can't really go back to the team side. People so don't maybe. Well, why can't you go back? Is it because unless you, you buy to... part of the team 
you typically can't go back. Now, Dave Stewart just did, but he had actually been with the team before he was an agent, and he happens to be, like, best buddies with the guy that is basically the president. So it's a very special situation. Is it because, like, uh, is there an antagonistic relationship? Yeah, and there's – yeah. It's sort of like uh, there's plenty of qualified people. This one has to go sell his business and then come do this, and people in the office that are beneath him will resent that he got to go make a bunch of money and do whatever he felt like mm-hmm. and live the good life and then come and jump in front of line in front of them. And it's kind of a morale thing also. Okay, yeah. But Dave Stewart is also – he's also famously intimidating. Yes, and fa- and now famously, as the chatter was the winter meetings, uh, not a big fan of the media. <laughs> Oh, is that right? Yeah, the local media does not like Dave Stewart right now. But wait, is it that's like like you were saying with regard to the GM job? Isn't that kind of a big part of the GM job? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's what's the problem. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, so that, there you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't like you just I can't. I won't go more into it because some of this was sort of off the record stuff that was related to me. But yeah, suffice to say, not huge fans of how. Right, but that, that's together. like that's what you said. Like part of the like the. What makes that job less appealing is the fact that you just have to sometimes say things. Like people are going to ask you questions. You have to be there. You have to say things. You can't tell them everything, of course, because you know a lot of it's proprietary, et cetera. So you're just like, yeah, we're going to be good. Can't this, wait. This is Jeff Luno's problem. Right. If there oh, was what? no media, he would be perceived as a success so far because the average reader wouldn't know that much of the industry just doesn't like him personally and sort of some of the stuff he's done. Right. And you wouldn't have the media who then figures that out from the other teams and decide, oh, he's not being super open with us, you know, giving us as much access as the last guy did. So we're going to start bashing him too. Mm-hmm. And now he's seen as like this controversial figure when if you look at like, oh, he has a five-year building plan. We're in year three or whatever, and they might be 500. Like he's kind of on schedule. Like he hasn't technically in the large scheme of things really yeah. done anything wrong. But there's been sort of, you know, media stuff and like some small little stuff that hasn't worked out and some people kind of gunning for him, uh, if, which if you're gunning for anybody, you could make them look bad. Right, right, right. That stuff kind of added up. Right. Um, the third, third job, third yeah, job. third job. And this is, you know, the baseball tonight one, I've, I know of a couple of very high profile people in baseball that got jobs with teams off of baseball tonight because the owner watched them every night and said, that guy's smart. I want to hire that guy. So that's a good spot because you can live wherever you want. You yeah. go to Bristol here and there. You get paid a good amount, and you're so still sort of free, in the mix. So you have free video resume as well. Yeah, yeah, for, and for potentially a big you know, TV job. If you want to make the seven figures and be on TV regularly, it's a nice tryout, and then you're still sort of in the mix for team jobs. Now, the third one is uh, the special assistant job, like sort of the number – some teams will have like eight special assistants because that's just the way they structure it. But one people sort of are quoting is the number one special assistant. So these guys will make – well into the six figures, competitive with the Baseball Tonight salary, and often don't work necessarily that much harder. Now, some of them are very hands-on. We'll go to Latin America. We'll do July 2. We'll do the draft. We'll do everything because that's just sort of the way they roll because, you know, typically they've been scouts for a long time. But most of these guys are 45 or 50 to about 70 years old, Mm -hmm. and it's like they're the right-hand man to the GM. Every decision goes sort of through him or his opinion gets gets involved, gets to kind of travel whenever he wants to. If he needs a month off, he gets a month off. If he wants to come to the office during the trade deadline and kind of see what's going on, he gets to do it. And he is not held – his feet aren't held to the fire. Like nobody really knows who he is. He gets paid a good amount of money. He's involved in everything. If the GM gets fired, that guy is known to be valuable, and so he gets picked up by another team, even if it's in a slightly diminished role. He's you know making half as much money as the number four scout or whatever. Like – it's a it's a plum gig, 
but you got to scout for at least 20 years and usually more than that to get the job. I want that job. Can I – how do I That's, do so what I So this guy was like, wait, so people just want to be GM so that they can get one of those three jobs? I was like, well, you don't go from GM to agent. But I think everyone that's here, uh, you know, sort of job seeking, if they were to have been in an office for a few years and gotten the lay of the land, I think that's what they'd be gunning for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. So that's what we have. Yeah. I think that's the now expressed purpose uh, for this podcast to get us those jobs. Listen, Kylie, um, I told my wife. That's not how you say that. <laughs> I told – my wife, that I would be done at 7. It is now 7.15. Oh, she's not happy. And my dog is acting like a giant banana. I have... Because my dog gets fed at 7. That's why I would say I said I would get off at 7. Well, I feel like we haven't really talked about anything yet. I know. But you know what? There's a lot of substance this week. Yeah, I feel, and I feel like those are the. this is the sort of information... Uh, you wouldn't get unless you asked a specific question. Like this isn't something that's going to show up in an article one day. No, no, no. I I, I enjoy these exclusive. exclusive. I enjoy these uh, conversations we have. It's I think they're actually. Um, I think this is what the podcast form is good at, is to, uh, like to track down, like find a thread and track it down. And I think that's what we did. I don't even know where we started. We we, we talked about. It. We just we were the David Dahl in center field, and this podcast was the fly ball just out of our zone. Yeah, well, it's funny because I think we did start with David Dahl at some point, and, and I, don't, it down. I don't necessarily know how we got here, but uh, it worked. It worked fine. I'm, I'm into right. it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a pleasure, Kylie. Let's. Uh, um, I'll thank you. Uh, I'll thank you first. I'll thank you on behalf of the listeners, and then I'll we'll say goodbye. And then I'll uh, I'll uh, stop recording, and then uh, we can talk briefly, and then we'll go. Wow, you really laid out a nice itinerary there. That's what we're doing, yeah. All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kyle McDaniel. I'm the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Ah, that has been Kyle McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst. The lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Well, we're moving on now. We're moving on up to-